Hey, welcome back to the Beautiful News Podcast. This is Adam again, and today I've got Collier with me. And we're going to look at the next question on the list here of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's a loaded phrase. Some people don't even know what that means, but it's just a fancy way of describing a list of common central beliefs that are as ancient as Christianity itself. At least that's one interpretation. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. And it comes from the um, people who, it was a council who got together and wrote these beliefs as their um, statement of faith, really. So, but yeah, I would say they're just beliefs that have been agreed upon since the early church, post-Jesus. At least the first 10 or 20 of them. It does get a little bit into the weeds higher up in the number, and there's like over 100 of these. So we're going to really highlight the initial set of beliefs, because I think these are the real core teachings of Christianity. And the one here that we're looking at today is number five on the list. And it says, are there more gods than one? Simple question, right? Yeah. And the answer is, there is but one only, the living and true God. And that'll do it for today. So <laughs> at least in my ears, doesn't at all sound challenging or controversial. So there's got to be more to it than that. What is it that you see? Well, one of the problems, maybe the reason it is controversial is because um, people will say that Muslims, Christians worship the same God, or or if you go into more of the Middle Eastern culture, or there's a plethora of gods in polytheism. And the Hindu culture has like, there's a God for each region. And so I think one of the things that makes it so controversial is throughout history, if you look, there are many nations and people and tribes that have an idea or a sense that there's more than one God. And so answering that question is a sidestep from what this says, but it makes it more difficult to answer. And it does seem like the question will hinge on what you define as God. So if you narrow the definition of God to something regional or specific, then you could come away with a whole host of gods, especially in, like you mentioned, the Hebrew, not the Hebrew, the Hindu culture. And the Bible is very clear in the Old and the New Testament that there is only one real, true creator God. And if you go back to a previous episode, we go to greater lengths trying to define what is meant by the word God. And there are more uh, parts of that episode actually coming out yet. Uh, we're waiting on a, um, on a repair, actually, to get some of those uploaded. But right now, we're just looking at how does the Bible answer this question about a multiplicity of gods. Before we even get into this verse, or the set of verses, let's try a philosophical approach. So can we deduce just from reason alone that if there is God, then there must, by definition, be only one God, as opposed to maybe an Eastern idea that there are as many gods as there are ideas. Uh, the, the old term for this is called polytheism. Poly just means many, like a polygon. And theism is a Greek suffix that means God, or theos means God. So polytheism is a set of beliefs that include the idea that there are many gods. And there's no number put on it, just many. This was apparently the default belief of ancient civilizations. I'm not sure exactly how 
you could sociologically describe why it is the case that that would be the initial belief from cultures. There's been some, you know, summaries, which these are speculative, I think, but it goes something like this. You know, you have a tribe living in, you know, a field near a river, and there's not a whole lot of understanding about the science of nature around them, but but they do notice that there are thunderstorms and that there is a periodic flooding of the river. There's also enemy tribes that are maybe on the other side of the river, and every once in a while there might be a battle taking place. Without a lot of information on just the the geography or the science of, you know, it's like how the ecological system works or why thunderstorms occur, it'd be tempting to just ascribe divinity to each of those different things, especially if they're fearful. So if there's a fearful tribe on the other side of the river, you might say that there is a, you know, a spirit or a God over there uh, that is leading that tribe. And there might be a God of the river that is responsible for giving you water, especially in the fertile season when you need to plant crops. And there might be a God of the harvest. And if, if, you planted a lot of crops and then say um, a plague of locusts came and destroyed everything, then, well, what do you do with that? I mean, I, I can see, I can sympathize in my own mind how there's a temptation to say, I'm being punished. I must have done something wrong. Now, I, I might think that because I think we all sort of live with a very subtle guilt uh, as we know generally things that are right and wrong in a very vague and broad sense. We're also somewhat aware that we're not doing those right things. So we kind of carry that guilt that's like very vague and in the back of our mind. So then when something happens that's unpleasant, we might initially go, I'm being punished and then go, there's a God who's punishing me. So maybe that's the reason. I don't know. That's just one idea of why apparently ancient civilizations had initially an idea that there are many gods. But can we, just on philosophy alone, deduce that there's there can only be one God? What do you think? I want to say yes, but at the same time, I think about the tribes and the cultures from past, and it seems like if we could do it from a philosophical standpoint, then they would have gotten there. Um, so I don't want to just say yes without completely... I don't want to say absolute yes, but I do think that we can. And one reason... Well, take me through that. What would be the way? How how would you get there? Well, I think one way that you can do this is just simply, um, I think people have called it the cause and effect argument. And I've heard it described as if you if you have a train and there's, you see a train going past the track and, you know, there's all the different carts going and... You don't think, as the train is going by, that it's just endless train carts or um, whatever you call them that's continuing to stack up and that's running and running and running. But you know, as you see the train, that at some point there's an engine or something that is pushing the train to go. And so to think that there is just the train is made up of all of these carts. And so you could circle the world with all these carts. But without an engine, the carts can't go. And so there must be some force that is superior to the things that um, it creates or the things that it pushes. So in this uh, analogy, the engine is what is causing the carts to go. There has to be a God that is the first creator or the first um, 
cause that makes things happen. Right, exactly. That, and that's an old Greek puzzle. Uh, and it has to do with something like infinite regress. And like you mentioned, there's got to be something that starts it off. So maybe in this idea, there has to be an initial God who himself has no uh, parent God. And maybe there are other gods. Maybe he spawns other deities, but there has to be one that is before. And we might also um, deduce that the whoever is before is also greater. If he, if he spawns other beings, you could, you could argue that whatever being he spawns could not be greater than himself. Now, this is a, this is a different puzzle that also has been played with in Greek mythology. You know, most famously you have, um, who was Saturnalius? What was his, uh, Kronos. And, uh, Kronos, if I remember correctly, you know, my Greek mythology is not great. He, he gave birth to the more well-known gods like Zeus and Hera and um, uh, Hades. Or maybe he gave birth to the Titans. I can't remember. But what happened is that there was a battle going on and Zeus ended up winning. So like the thing that was spawned that came later actually became superior. That's the And that was a, an idea that was popular, at least in Greek culture. But I don't think it follows necessarily. I, I think that you can still make a case that whatever comes before has to have some authority that cannot be totally extinguished, especially when we're talking about natures of God here. We're not, we're not talking about you having children because, yeah, your children can grow up and then they can be stronger or faster than you. But they can't be fundamentally better than you. They can't be fundamentally different than you because they are from you. They are derived from you. So they are of you. They are of your nature. And whatever God inaugurates is from him, derived from him. And especially when we combine this with, like what we said about what does it mean to be God? And God is the conclusion of everything that we experience about power, love, and truth, and beauty. Those all converge at God. So... If there are a multiplicity of gods, there's still one God that is at the top. There's still one being that sits above everything. And this is the argument actually in the Bible. It is not that there aren't other lowercase g gods. Uh, there's, in fact, a lot of them, but there's only one living and true God, you might say. So, and funny, um, because in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, he says, in multiple places, but he says something like, I am and there is none beside me. Um, and maybe even going back further into, what is it, Deuteronomy? He says, hear, O Israel, in verse 4, the Lord our God is one Lord. But notice how in both of those places, the language that's used is not saying that there are not other lowercase g gods. There's just no one that is like the true God. There's no one that can rise to his level. There's no one that can compare to the one living and true God. So the Bible actually has an open door to plenty of spirit beings that, um, that are compatible in the universe where God has made everything. And yet every time there is a potential like insurrection or battle, it's evident that the living and true God is not at all threatened. So like probably most famously is the, what's credited to Satan in Isaiah 14 
where it's mentioned sort of cryptically in a poem about the king of Tyre. And he said, I will make my throne like the most high. I will rise up and be like him. That's the living and true God. So he's seeming to, you know, try and he's trying to compare to the, to the creator of all, but he's immediately cast down. It's like, there's no real battle. And this is reiterated in the new Testament. Like in Romans nine, he describes all the creatures as clay. And he says, can the things that are made look at the one who made them and say, why did you make this? Why did you make me this way? You know, and, and then he elsewhere says, and also Romans 9, who can thwart the will of God? So again, by definition, anything that is made by God, even lowercase g gods, they cannot look at the true God and say, I can actually be just as good as you. So there is only one true God and the Bible would back this up several places. Yeah, I agree. And I think it helps in understanding what you said, that there's not a closed door to the other lowercase gods, but that when the Bible speaks of one God, there's one God who is superior uh, as creator, but also superior in his love and his power and his beauty and his wisdom. And so it's not as if the one God that we're serving is asking for our worship and we kind of have to begrudgingly give it to him, but rather he's the one that the only one that's worthy of worship the lowercase g gods they because they are created by the one true god their purpose is also to worship god as well and um so it's not as if this god is on the same playing field and that's really important to understand whenever it comes to why we should worship god the one true god um that reveals himself amen i agree we might want to talk about who are these lowercase g gods. You know, the they're called multiple things. So we want to say at the beginning that these are creatures. So they, even though they are called gods, they're not ever the creator. So they have been called angels. They could be called in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Elohim, which is a word also used of God. Um, they can be called Nephilim. Uh, they can be called the the fallen ones, which is what Nephilim translates into, something like that. And there are other names in the Bible that are probably less known, like cherubim and seraphim. But we might just categorize all these loosely as heavenly creatures or celestial beings, or maybe just spirits. And that would include good and bad. You know, the these whatever they are, they're not human. Right? They're not mankind. That's a distinction made early on in the Bible. And it's also made early on in the Bible that there are good and bad, which I want to bring up another term here that's that's describing some of the evolution of ancient beliefs about God. So if we say, go with the narrative that initially tribes would have a polytheistic default, which means they just sort of see gods, multiple gods everywhere, and there's no real one God over them, then that, by the way, that that idea would be reinforced by these lowercase g gods who, though they can't compete with the one true God, they can compete with each other and they can lie and deceive. So they can make people perhaps tempted to believe that they are on the same level as the capital G God, even if they're not. But then there is a progression through time that transforms 
very naturally from what would be called polytheism to another word called henotheism. And it's very similar, except that it's closer to what we're more familiar with today, which is monotheism. And that just means mono one, right? So there's one God. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But that one in between, henotheism, is a belief that there are multiple gods, but there's only one God for us. And the us is whatever you want it to be, our family, our nation, our people, our ethnic group. And so the the henotheistic time period would be a lot of the Old Testament where Israel is already a nation. And so they're, they're telling each other, the Lord or Yehovah or Yahweh, he's our God. But then they would talk about these other gods like the Baal and Molech, Dagon, Ashtoreth, and others who are not just a plethora of gods, but they are specifically gods of nations. And so there, there is a God for the Philistines. There's a God for the Phoenicians, and there's a God for the Amalekites, etc. And they might have a couple or two that they, two or three that they prefer, but there's still one that's like theirs. Their their patron saint God. And then when there would be battles that would take place, it would be understood by the people that what was really happening was the gods were battling. So, you know, the story of David and Goliath, where David as a young shepherd boy takes on a giant who's a battle-hardened warrior, you know, Goliath. And, you know, Goliath, before the battle starts, for 40 days, he's standing on the other side of the valley, blaspheming the God of Israel. And at the same time, championing his God or the God of his people. And so he calls out Israel and says, send me your best fighter and we'll go one-on-one, mano y mano. And the winner will be understood um, victorious because the God of that person or that nation is superior. And that's why the God is invoked in the language. And, you know, David goes out and he's defending the integrity of the God of Israel. And he says very boldly, I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And when he defeats Goliath and then they chase the Philistines, the Israelites are encouraged in their mind now that the God of Israel is more powerful than the God of the Philistines. And so one, you know, maybe a more modern day counterpart of henotheism would be something like Pokemon, where these avatars are sort of battling and you're figuring out which one is the strongest. And there are multiple ones, but they're not just everywhere and in everything, but they're like favorite gods. Now there's there's good reason to believe that this henotheistic idea is also backed up in the Bible and is evidenced in reality because of these, again, these lowercase g gods. And uh, this would go all the way back to the story of the Tower of Babel. And there's a lot of speculation on what exactly happened there. You know, you have the account in Genesis 10 and 11. Uh, the, the nations of the world were still one. They were one language and they had one goal and the goal was not in alignment with God's will. He wanted them to spread and to multiply and they wanted to stay put and to elevate themselves. And they built this tower and supposedly on top of the tower, there are some sketchy things, symbols and and astrology and zodiacs that they put on top of this tower. And it was a way of defying God. And behind their defiance were these fallen creatures, these spirit beings in rebellion, these lowercase g gods that were bad, they were empowering and motivating this rebellion. And when God scattered the people at Babel by dividing their language 
thus forcing, forcing them to separate into different nations. Those lowercase g gods went in those different directions. And so you have different gods of different nations forming, which, of course, these are fallen creature spirits who are in defiance of the living and true God. And now you fast forward to Abraham's story. Abraham is living in a land where polytheism or henotheism is kind of the, just the rule. And God, the living and true God, calls Abram out of that ignorant and pagan view of nature and what reality is. And he says to Abram, hey, Abram, I'm going to tell you who I really am. And so he, he tells him to leave the land of his fathers and go to another land. And there he will, God will reveal himself to Abram. And so Abram begins to learn about this living and true God. And Israel, which is the grandson of Abram, Jacob's name is later changed to Israel, who has, you know, he has 12 sons and they become the nation. God, the living and true God, we have to say the capital G God, chooses this people through which to explain to the whole world who the living and true God is. And he has multiple ways of doing this. Now it culminates in the person of Jesus, but still before that, God is communicating through Israel who the real and true God is. And so God will send ambassadors, which would be maybe prophets in one case, but in other cases, he actually sends angelic beings to become the representative of the living and true God for Israel. So you have another strange kind of henotheistic manifestation where there is like a lowercase g God of Israel that's really representing the living and true God competing against these other lowercase g gods of other nations. Now, a place where this comes up really clearly is in Daniel chapter 10. And there, there is a reference as Daniel is praying to the living and true God. There's a, there's an answer that's given by an angel, which says, you know, your prayers were heard, Daniel, as soon as you started praying, but there's something going on that you don't see, Daniel. There's a spiritual battle taking place. And the, in this case, at least, the lowercase g God of Israel is Michael, who is described in the Bible as an archangel, which is one of the highest ranking spiritual beings. And he's going against, in the spiritual realm, someone who is defined as the prince of Persia, which is a lowercase g God, a spirit of this other pagan nation. And so they're actually battling. And so you get that henotheistic picture again. But here's the thing that we want to really say as clearly as we can. The lowercase g God of Israel, insofar as that was ever manifested, is just a representative of the living and true God. And that's what the message is over and over again. Through the prophets, through the, the priests, through the kings, like even David who wrote many songs, God is revealing himself as one. He is only one God. He has created many beings and some of them have rebelled against him and some of them actually more of them have stayed loyal and holy in their state and that's what we typically call today as angels you know but uh, these are just lowercase g gods in another vernacular another vocabulary who are worshiping the living and true god so if if this henotheism is correct and true which i believe as you said, it has biblical backing, then in the Old Testament or in the time period of history that is included in the Old Testament, how would you answer the question of why Why is Israel the only one that that seems to have 
the true and living God on their side or as their God? And is there or was there a way for other nations to say, hey, like, I respect this God. I see that he's the most powerful God. I want to follow him. How would you answer that question for somebody who is maybe thinking about that? You know what? That's a great question. I love that question. There's actually so many things going on here at the same time. I'm trying to figure out how to approach it because one of the things initially that I thought of when you said that is, well, there is Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Who's a guy? He's not He's not an Israelite. He's living in the same time as Abram, who is later, his name is changed to Abraham. And Melchizedek is worshiping the living and true God. So God does, independent of Israel, reveal himself to seekers in the Old Testament era. And Melchizedek is one of these examples, but there are others like Enoch in Genesis 5 or Noah, which we all know, Noah's story, who worshiped and served the living and true God. And so, like I said, there's something that happens at Babel when there's this formation of what we call the table of nations. And this is where, this is what really sets up the story of God coming to Abraham and saying, I'm going to work through this nation, through this people. But his purpose is to reveal himself to the world. So there was a spiritual fall, a deception, a defiance. The rebellion um, is not limited to the spiritual realm because man also is in rebellion. And yet through both of these different dimensions, God is revealing his true nature. He's He is manifesting his glory. So I would say at any point and at any time, any individual within any nation can humble themselves and discover the living and true God because his desire is to be revealed. But we do have to realize that we suffer a lot of the curse of the sin's of our fathers and our people, our ancestors, our nation. And you might think, well, that doesn't seem fair, but it's clearly true. Like for example, when our nation in America, when they, when, when the legislation comes out and there's this new law, and let's say that new law is unrighteous, it's wicked, we all suffer because of that. Even though the people who made the law may be few in number, they are actually doing something that has effects on all of us and it can be lasting. So this is true for any nation. And in ancient, you know, in, in antiquity, if, if as a nation, whoever's in charge is doing things that are in defiance of God and his nature and his will, then the whole nation will suffer, right? And, th- and there's a language again in the Old Testament of this, like, if, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways and repent, then I will hear from heaven and I will come and heal their land. And I think that God demonstrates his patience with other nations when he didn't, um, he didn't destroy Nineveh. Let me, let me say that again. He did not destroy Nineveh immediately when Jonah went to preach because they repented, even though they were pagan and wicked. He also was patient with the Amalekites when he was talking to Abram uh, about the future. He, he said specifically to Abraham that, if there were 10 people in Sodom and Gomorrah that were righteous, he would spare the whole city. So God is working to reach other nations. And he has a mechanism, which is called Israel in the Old Testament, but his desire is to be known by all the world. And I think it's important when thinking about this too, to realize that although God seemed to 
punish the other nations in war and battle through famine, whatever, that he also, it's not as if God was the God of Israel and Israel always won and Israel was always in control and always prosperous. Because if you just read simply through the book of Judges, you see that um, Israel will repent They'll turn to God, and He will give them victory, and they will be prosperous. But whenever they turn away from God, then other nations capture them, and they're in slavery and, and punishment. And so that helps whenever, you, at least me, whenever I'm trying to understand the relationship between the one true God and the other gods in the Old Testament, and just knowing God's nature, because Anyone who repents or anyone who seeks him, he will reveal himself. But even his own people, he's just. And he will, um, their consequences, the consequences of following other gods or disobeying the one true God, like he also punishes them. And that just shows me his nature and his character. And I think that's important because it's, it's not like Greek mythology, you know, where there is one God and he he is the nation's God and he's the most powerful and he's the most victorious, um, no matter the circumstance or the situation. But, well, he is, but his people don't always um, succeed because God's blessing and God's um, giving the people victory depends on the reaction and the actions of his people. So, yeah. I agree. Like God chose Israel, but his favor upon them was contingent on their obedience. So he didn't, he didn't just overlook their own sin. In fact, he is just as harsh on Israel on many occasions because of their, because of their relative revelation. They have received light through the word and yet they might have rebelled in a case. So God punishes them just as he would another nation. And now there's still two more looming questions that we haven't really discussed yet. And one of them is, if we make the jump from henotheism to monotheism, which is just a greater understanding of the fact that there's only one living and true God. So it's not a henotheistic battle of Pokemon gods to see who will be victorious, but that all of those battles are really underneath the one real living and true God. And so in the light of the presence of this one living and true God, all these other creatures, they don't even look like gods anymore. There's only one God. Like everything else can be described differently. So the question is, which which God are we talking about? Because Christianity has an answer, and Jew, Judaism has an answer, and Islam has an answer. They all think that there's only one living and true God, but they can't agree on who that God is. And then the second question is more specific, but how how does Jesus come into this whole thing? And further help us understand uh, this one living and true God. So why don't we start with the first one? Which God are we talking about? Is it, do the, do the Jews and the Muslims and the Christians worship the same God or are they worshiping different gods? What do you, how do you want to answer that? I'll start by talking about the Muslims and the Christians now Judaism it seems to be a bit more tricky because um, Christianity actually comes from Judaism. So I'll start with the question of do the Muslims and the Christians worship the same God? And my answer is no. And I'll say that I'll explain because simply because one reason is the idea of the Muslim God Allah. That's what they would call him. 
is much different than the idea or the understanding of the Christian God, Yahweh, that I have and the Bible teaches. And I think it's helpful to understand the nature of God, but it's also helpful in understanding the nature of God philosophically. And so when looking at if we worship the same God, there there is a difference in the Christian God and the Muslim God that is stark to me. And the the one that is often uh, described the most is the way in which sin is dealt with. And so we know that in the, well, the Christian sense, sin is dealt with through the person of Jesus. And so it's a logic argument based on justice that says God must punish us for our sins because we have rebelled against him and he would be unjust if he did not punish us. And so there's there's two options in the Christian uh, faith and worldview that either the person who commits the sin is the one who's punished or Jesus takes the sin on the cross. And that's important because it, it allows for a just way for our sin to be dealt with, for the wrong to be repaid, for the wicked um, to have a way to be punished or at least the sin is punished. There's consequences. But in the Muslim faith with Allah, I've, I've spoken to many Muslims, and we'll we'll get to this point, and I'll say, how is sin dealt with? What do you think? Like, how does God deal with your sin? And they say, well, if he's merciful, then we will be forgiven. We'll be able to get into heaven. And if you think about the fact that everyone internally wants sin to be punished, wants evil to be punished. And I mean, if someone were to harm my wife or my kid, like there's something inside of me, a passion that comes up where I think there deserves to be justice and the evil deserves to be punished. And the Christian faith gives an answer of how that happens, how the wicked are punished. But the Muslim, it's simply by just hoping that Allah is merciful enough, that they're grac- that he's gracious enough and it's a scale system to where if I do enough good, then it will outweigh my bad and Allah can be merciful. But the problem is that no matter how good, how much good you do, that the evil is still not punished. Mm-hmm. And so that's one reason I would say there's a distinction in how I, how I understand Yahweh and I understand Allah. And there, so there's a difference simply on how they deal with sin. And, and I think it goes back to the nature of the God themselves. Well, the, yeah, you bring up a really good point. And I want to push back a little bit on how do we know if we're talking about two different gods? And here's one way that you could think about it. Um, let's say that I'm going outside and I'm right now I'm wearing an orange shirt. And somebody drives by and that they know who I am and they see me. And so later you run into the same person at the store and you tell them how you were with me this morning. We were recording a podcast episode and they say, oh, yeah, I saw Adam, too. He was outside wearing a purple shirt. Well, you would say, no, no, no. He, he was wearing an orange shirt. And he would say, if he persisted, no, he was definitely wearing a purple shirt. In this case, you have a disagreement about something that is an accessory of my clothing here, but you wouldn't think you're talking about a different person necessarily. Maybe you are. Maybe you saw a guy that looked like me. 
in a purple shirt. Or maybe he was just wrong about the color of my shirt. All right now, let me invert that whole thing where you've got something that is superficially different, but we're talking about the same person. But you could also have the opposite of that, where especially, and this happens a lot with a, a crime scene, you know, there's uh, an incident that happens, somebody's heard, and there's eyewitnesses, and they give that information to the detective, the police department, they start searching for potential suspects, and they find a guy who meets some of those superficial descriptions. So like they find the person who say was in the orange shirt, you know, and who had a certain hair color and a certain height and was in that area at that time. Okay. And then, so they, let's say they apprehended this guy and they bring him in and he fits all the description superficially, but it might actually be a different person. So you could have like opposite problems here where you have the same person, but just something that's not really significant is different. And one of the people may be wrong, or maybe both of them are wrong. You know, I might have a blue shirt on, or you might have things that look very similar, but it could be a totally different person. So you see how that's an interesting um, dilemma when we're saying, are we really talking about the same God or are we talking about a different God? And so when we're answering the question of say Islam and Christianity, where would we place those distinctions when we're saying, is this the same God or is this truly a different God? Well, to use the analogy, on one side with the the purple shirt, or you, you said that the color of the shirt would seem to be insignificant. So both of them could be wrong. One could be right, one could be wrong, but it's the same person. But on the other analogy that you gave, it's a... In the crime scene, it's significant because it is a different person. And I would say that the the differences between Allah and the differences between Yahweh are significant. So if we're going based off the analogy, I would I would say that in the it is a different person that you gave. It's not just an insignificant difference. Well, let, let's say you saw that guy at the store and he said he saw me today and I had a purple shirt on. And, but you know that I have an orange shirt on. How would you, in that conversation, discern whether or not he was talking about a different person or if he was mistaken about the shirt color? Well, I would ask some questions um, about what the person looked like, who the person was, and how where you saw the person. Yeah, so I guess the point I'm getting to is, at what point would you then think in your mind, he's talking about a different person? What would be the the epiphany like the clue that he reveals to you, I, like he's telling you some things and you think at first he's just wrong about the color of the shirt. But at what point would you go, no, wait a second. You're not even talking about the same guy. When the, when the guy that he's describing looks different, different place, not at the same, <laughs> not at the same location. Um, whenever what he's starting to describe doesn't match up with the person that I actually saw or the person that I actually knew was whenever I would say, I think we just saw a different person. But I I mean, do you think it's possible? I'm sure people ask this question. I've thought this question before, and this is really what we're dancing around, that Allah and Yahweh are the same God. One is just one view is correct and the other is a misconception. Well, we know many Muslim people would say that, and they would go on to say that Allah is the correct interpretation. But I think that the the distinction is more significant. 
like you were pointing to, then just saying it's the same God, but maybe some less important beliefs about him are in, in error. They're incorrect. And it has to do with what we might describe as the fundamental nature of this being. So in the case of Islam, we're, ta- we're talking about a creator, and that's, that's actually identical in description to how the Bible describes God. He is the creator. Islam will say that there is no God beside him. That he is the one and only living and true God, creator of all. And it's important to observe that this information in Islam, in the Quran, comes from the Hebrew scriptures. That's why it's so similar. It's literally coming from the same uh, source text. So both Christianity and Islam are going back to the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, although the, the Islamic tradition will just import those ideas into the Quran, whereas Christianity will directly go to those books. Those intrinsic ideas about the creatorness of God are preserved. So we'd say in that up to that point, we're talking about the same God. And yet whenever there is a further revelation of this being that fundamentally diverges, then we have to question, you know, whether or not that distinction is significant enough to say this is a different God now. And it does feel a little bit cheap to just walk around saying, well, we're, we're worshiping different gods, worshiping different gods. Like we have, like as if we have this total vision of all of what God is just easily apprehendable in our mind, which that's clearly not true. But we can say the the idea that you are worshiping of God, the, the idea that you believe about God is fundamentally false. And, and believing in that idea will actually condemn you. And it has to do with what you were saying about the gospel. So what you would say to, say, a Muslim is rather than getting in the semantic about if Allah and Yahweh are connected in any way, what does Allah tell you about redemption, forgiveness, justification? Because that's the eternal question. Like, how is man made right with this, with this creator? How, how does man who is mortal meet the maker who is immortal? And in Islam, you have a fundamentally different idea. And that idea goes back to being morally upright yourself and hoping for the best. And so in the conclusion of that pursuit, which is what any works-based religious system will give you, you will, you will meet failure because man cannot live up to that standard of perfection. But then in Christianity alone, you have a revelation of God that provides his perfection as a vicarious substitute. So he, in other words, will give you his righteousness as a gift, and that gift is in Jesus. Now, if you want to go to really tangible distinctions here, and I was talking to a Muslim the other day, actually, on campus, and he asked me, what's the difference between Christianity and Islam? And I know he had his own ideas about it, but he wanted to know what I thought. And I said, look, here's the, here's the difference. The, on the ground where the rubber meets the road difference. Did Jesus die on the cross? You don't even have to go further than that question. Because Islam says he didn't. The Quran says that Jesus did not die on the cross. That he was led to the cross, that he was maybe put on the cross, but he did not die on the cross. He was translated to heaven. He was taken away, but he didn't die. And Christianity says not only did Jesus die, but that it is only by his death that man could be made right with God. So that 
difference is not just some historical trivial fact. This is the thing that makes man give it. This is what gives man, grants man eternal life is the death of Jesus. If we don't have his death and resurrection, then we really don't have any hope, any gift, any life after this one. All we can face is the fearful judgment of a righteous and holy creator. And that's what Islam offers you. So that's that. And, and what you'll find here, if you're talking to a Muslim, is if you say that, did Jesus die on the cross, you will immediately find, okay, we don't agree. If you talk in loose philosophical terms, then the, you know, the person you're talking to who practices or believes in some version of Islam, they might try to spend time telling you you're talking about the same God. But if you just say, did Jesus die on the cross? There you go. That's the difference that really matters because it has to do with eternity. So on the other hand, like you mentioned with Judaism, it is different because we're both have, we both have the same source text exactly. We both have the Old Testament, even if we give it a different name. We're talking about Genesis through Malachi and um, the question is, who is interpreting those scriptures correctly? So the, the present-day Jew who believes in the Old Testament, and there are Jews who would say that they're atheistic, although that sounds like an oxymoron. Um, so the Jews who believe in the Hebrew scriptures, they will say that the Christians do not correctly interpret the Hebrew scriptures. And again, this can be absolutely fundamental. So we could get to a point where we're not talking about the same God anymore. What do you think? I agree, but with the Jew, it really still comes down to the same question because the interpretation is if the Messiah has come or not. That's what it really boils down to. So, and if we were to speak to a Jew, he would say, no, the Messiah hasn't come yet. And no, I don't, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. So it's not exactly the same because they would probably say that they believe that Jesus died on the cross, but they don't believe that that was the Messiah who would atone for the sins. And they, they, interpret another way to eternal life. But it all comes down for both the Jew and the Muslim in a Christian dialogue with them about the person of Jesus. That's what that's what the argument is on, on both sides. Now, l- let me jump in here and give you, um, let, me, let me import that analogy I shared a few minutes ago back into this conversation. So you're at the store and you're talking to a guy who has run into me or he saw me earlier. Let's say he even talked to me or who he thought was me. And you're trying to figure out if the person he talked to was really me or not. And here may be one of those giveaways. He might look at you and say, yeah, I talked to Adam and Adam said, I have no son. That you would know immediately whoever he's talking to is not Adam because I know Adam has children, especially like specifically Adam has a son. He has two sons, right? But He has at least one son. So if this man says that the person he talked to, even if he goes by the same name, if he says he has no son, now you know we're talking about a different person. And Islam and Judaism alike would both say God has no son. Or in like an Islamic way of describing it, they would say Allah has no son. They will say that unapologetically. Now, if we assume... Jesus is the manifestation of the Son of God so that Jesus, like he said, he came from heaven. He came from the presence of the Father. And he said he came to reveal the Father. And he told Philip, I think it was Philip, he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If that is the truth, then 
if somebody else says that God has no son, then they're not even talking about God anymore. Because what we're saying is that this, this is actually from heaven. This is how God is revealing himself. This is, this is God saying, hey, here I am. Look at me. This is who I am. And then somebody else says, no, God has no son. Now we're talking about a different, whatever we were talking about, the set of ideas, the description, it's not the same. And it's not the same in a critical level. And it's fair enough to say we're talking about different gods. Although that, again, that, that can just derail some of the conversation. Um, Jesus said, if you don't receive me, then you don't receive the one who sent me. He said, if you don't believe in the son, then you don't believe in the father. And, and just like the Jew and the Muslim would say today, unapologetically, that God has no son, Jesus said unapologetically that the father has sent the son. And if you don't believe that, then you don't, you don't believe in God. In one case, he even sternly looks in, at, at the Pharisees who were in front of him in John chapter 8 and says that their father is the devil. So he, he was not at all uh, pulling punches and telling them that who they were worshiping was not the true living God, but that they had fallen, they had fallen for a lie. They may have started on the right track. And we know with the Hebrew scriptures, we've got the right initial starting point. But where do those scriptures lead? And we, of course, believe that those scriptures point to Jesus unequivocally. I mean, they got, the animal sacrifices point to the sacrifice, right? The prophecies of the Messiah point to the Messiah. And the king that would come in the line of David is epitomized in the king of the Jews, the king of kings, Jesus himself. So like everywhere you go to in the Hebrew scriptures, you've got this arrow that is pointing to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And so if you, if you reject that light, which Jesus is, then how can you say that you're worshiping the true God? I just don't think that you're talking about the same God anymore. Yeah, amen. I would agree. But the good news is that through the one true and living God and the revelation of self through Jesus, that we can know the true and living God, that if we repent and we humble ourselves and cry out to him in our hearts to know him, that we can. He'll reveal himself to us through his spirit. He already has through his son and through his word. And that is why it's so amazing that we can know the one true living God because he came in his son, Jesus. Amen. Now, perhaps somebody listening is wondering about the mystery of the Trinity, because we've been talking this whole time about how there's only one living and true God. And yet Jesus says that he came to reveal the father, but that he is not the father. The father and the son are distinct. And then yet there is a third, which is referred to as the spirit of truth, or another place, the Holy Spirit. Now you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and these three are one. How and how, how does that make any sense? Like how how do we make how do we rationalize in our minds that there's only one living and true God, and yet there's this triune description, and yet each of these is fully God? Well, that's a question we're saving for another episode. And so, if you want to hear more, you have to come back and listen to that. We deal with this question specifically, the question of the Trinity. But there is another elephant in the room that I've got to reveal. We've got to point it out. And that is the natural progression from polytheism to henotheism to monotheism. Some would argue today that there's one more step, the step that Christians, Jews, Muslims alike haven't taken, which is the step from monotheism to atheism. Like if you, if you keep reducing the number of gods, then why don't you just go all the way to zero and realize 
well, what you think is God is just a mystery of nature you don't understand. And what a thousand years ago people ascribed to God, we today would say, how silly. Like the thunder and the lightning and so many plagues are just facts of how the universe works. And they are indiscriminate and they don't care about your prayers. Um, so this so this would seem to be like a thorn in the side of you know the current description of God in the New Testament. How do we how do we know where to stop on the journey? And why do we believe that atheism is not the true revelation? Do you have a thought about that? Well, that could be a whole podcast, I think. But for me, at least it goes back still to the philosophical understanding of there has to be one cause for everything. Um, but besides that, I would say that atheism is, and we, we talk about this a lot, it's actually nonsense to think that everything came from nothing. And one reason that I, I think that you can't take the step to atheism is because to say that at the beginning, the origin a bunch of randomness came together into randomness and created order, it, it makes no sense. And in, any anyone who examines it, I, I can't I can't quite understand how they can fully, rationally, and logically take the the final step to say that everything came um, out of nothing to this order. And it's really just about the order and just an argument that I remember the I can't even remember which which one it is um, that clicked with me the first time I heard it was the argument about a watch in a field. And if, say, you're walking through a field and nothing's around for miles and miles and you pick up a watch, you open the, in, the face of the watch and you see all the intricacies and all the um, complex ways that the watch works together to show you just what the time is. No rational person picks up that watch and says, well, this just happened to be here. Just like they would pick up a rock and say, well, this rock just formed over time. And you equate the watch to the universe. You can't just look at the universe and say, oh, well, this just randomly was here and set here. This is the argument from design or order. It's sometimes called the teleological argument. And yeah, it's a very powerful argument. Uh, intuition, especially because the more we probe the universe, the more design seems to be there. You know, so the the old hundred year old versions of these arguments might seem like you could explain them away today, but yet there's still more design and more intricacy that is yet revealed in the same inquiry. So it demands some kind of designer. Uh, let me try to give another illustration to point out why it would be absurd to reduce plurality down to one and then just by the nature of that mathematical direction go to zero so like here would be another analogy if you're a little kid okay you grow up in a house that's traditional american family so uh sometime around the spring you wake up one morning and you go in your kitchen and there's a basket of easter eggs and chocolate and your parents say it was the easter bunny he came and brought you these things you know and then a couple of months go by you're eating a lot of chocolate your tooth falls out and you put that under your pillow, and then they say it was the tooth fairy that gave you this money. And then, of course, the most you know exciting point of a child's year on the calendar or calendar uh, day it would be Christmas morning when he's 
or she is walking into the living room and discovers that a bunch of gifts were delivered by a man in a red suit named Santa. And as you get older, you start to think through some of these things. A warning for any young viewers or young uh, listeners on the podcast here. But you get to a point where you realize, okay, there's no way that this could be the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. And so you reduce in your mind through just reflection, deduction, asking questions, and maybe even seeing evidence that, in fact, it isn't a bunch of of these creatures that are bringing you these gifts, but they're, they're coming from the same source. So it's not Easter Bunny, Santa, Tooth Fairy. It's your dad. It's really just your dad. He's the one doing it. And you come up with that hypothesis, and so you then look for it, and you wait up at night, and you, you know, with one eye open, you see him put a dollar under your pillow or a chocolate out on the table or a gift. And you go, okay, so the, there's a reduction here from many to one. But then imagine further inquiry and introspection going, well, you know what? It wasn't many. It was one. But what if it's not one? What if it's zero? What if it's not even my dad? What if it's just appearing out of nothing? What if really there's just food and gifts and money just naturally by no intelligence manifesting in, in my bedroom and in the living room and in the kitchen? Well, you say that's absurd. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a reason to go from many to one, but then there's no justification for going from one to zero because the logic of going from many to one is the same logic that would keep you from going to zero. Because you're saying there is one, right? So yeah, you you don't need to go further on the train to from monotheism to atheism. You've actually just done a like you know, parabolic move backwards if you go to atheism. Though it's uh, parallel to henotheism, it's still the same kind of reasoning. So yeah, there is one and there is only one living and true God. And that God has revealed himself. He has He's not hidden totally. He has given us revelation so that we can come to know this living and true God. And I'll close by just reading you one verse, which is a verse that we love, isn't it? Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus says that this is eternal life. He's praying this to the Father. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus is praying and saying, Not only does God want us to know him, but that knowing God is eternal life. So it's a gift that he gives, and it is an eternal uh, relationship that we can have with him. And it's because of his son, Jesus. So that's where we're going to stop today. And we'll come back next time and tackle the question of the Trinity. Mm -hmm.